When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Daniel Lorison about producing politics inside the exclusive campaign world where the privileged few shape politics for all of us. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, this is a fantastic and fascinating and um, sort of frequently quite quite amusing, but also quite depressing Um, book, partially because of the richness of the empirical material um, and partially because of our our sort of current political moment. And I guess, you know, with um, the American electoral cycle, you're only sort of, you know, a year or so away at any one point from from an election of some kind. So that the book, you know, really speaks directly to um, some important things that are happening right at the moment. But as well as a sort of, I guess, sociological analysis um, of politics, campaigning, of, of the professional politics. It's, it's also a kind of personal story as well in, in, in a way that um, is slightly different to some academic books. So, so I guess the place to start is, is kind of what's the personal story behind this book, particularly, uh, I guess, your, your own sort of personal history as a political campaigner. Um, yeah, so there's, I think there's probably two things you're thinking of. Um, one is you know, when people ask sort of why, why was I interested in this book? Why am I interested in this topic? Uh, the, the thing that I often talk about and is in the book a little bit is that I was raised in a family uh, where my mom was interested in making the revolution and that didn't happen. And, uh, you know, in retrospect often seems a little, a little naive, but also, you know, her passion was making the world more economically just, more racially just, more fair for poor and working class people, um, et cetera. And so I was sort of brought up with this question of like, how do we, how do we get from here to there? Um, and one thing that I've focused on in my academic work is politics. You know, democracy is actually, at least in theory, a pretty good system. Um, and so the question of how can democracy better represent regular people, better get the needs of people met is sort of a question that motivates a, a good chunk of the academic work that I do. Uh, the other personal story that's in the bo- book that's sort of more immediate right at the front is the uh, fact that I worked on the Obama campaign in 2008. And um, as I say at the beginning of the book, it really nearly led to, if, if not a divorce, at least a very serious uh, rift in my relationship. Um, because I, you know, I started going to the campaign office and it was really hard not to want to be there 
all the time, both because of the sense that it was such an important election that we were working on and, and it mattered so much and Obama was such a unique candidate and all of that, but also because when you're in a campaign, it it the culture is if you are a good person, a good worker, you will be there all the time. And so I was uh, out of the house from morning till dinner. I often came home just for dinner and then went back to the office until the wee hours of the morning. Um, and so that you know, that sort of shaped a lot of my questions about how campaigns work. And you know, it was a obviously really uh, big part of my uh, early early marriage, early parenting, etc. I mean, it's worth stressing, like, you were not unusual at all in, in that sense. And actually the kind of um, almost like sort of total institution of the political campaign is really fascinating from all of the, the field work uh, that you did. It, it comes through really, really clearly with, with the professionals you've spoken to. And I guess part of, of kind of understanding political campaigns as being, you know, constituted by particular professionals is to know a bit about so who they are and, and kind of what 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 do they do um and i wonder if, if you could give a kind of sense of like who it is that is in the book who you were speaking to um slightly later on in the book you know kind of in, in the middle of the book you get into what the actual jobs are and you know you talk about actually there's a range of things like getting out the vote canvassing political communications you know paying for stuff um, running offices, you know, this kind of stuff. So so who actually are campaign professionals and, you, you know, who are the people you were speaking to? Yeah, so, um, you know, when I asked them about who does this kind of work, the first thing a bunch of them said is that we're weird people. We're odd, we're unusual. Um, and what they meant, and I think this is really important for understanding their world, is that they're by and large people who have been um, excited about too often of, you know, an extreme or what you might call geeky degree, the, the world of politics, about political ads, about knowing the data on, you know, what's the Democrat, average Democratic vote percentage in the second congressional district in Ohio, um, for example. So they're, you know, they're, they're political fans. They're excited about politics in much the way that um, other other young people might be excited about collecting baseball fans or Star Wars lore or etc. Um, so that's one way, you know, sort of one way to talk about who they are. Uh, another way to talk about who they are is that they're disproportionately white and even more disproportionately from um, what you might call middle class, upper middle class, relatively well off families. Um, so and that's partly because of what it takes to get into working in politics. It's partly because of who tends to develop this kind of uh, obsession when they're young. Um, and it's partly about sort of the culture once people, once people get there. I, I was wondering when, when to kind of flag this question about, about these kind of weird, weird people. But um, maybe up front, we'll, we'll kind of say about the book, this is not a Republican or a Democrat thing. And, you know, it's not that kind of, you know, Democrats are, you know, full of these kind of weird people and Republicans are not or, you know, vice versa. And, and one of the things that kind of struck me was this is an analysis. It's, it's a sociology of a profession. It's not a party political thing. Um, that said, though, one of the things that comes up in the book, and, and this might be a, a good kind of route in uh, to, to some of the analysis of, of how the book is, you know, kind of 
um, doing sociology for the profession is there are distinctive kind of cultural patterns with the two parties. And it'd be useful, I, th- I think, to hear a bit about, I suppose, the kind of similarities and the differences between the two parties, even though it's, you know, it's not a party political book in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I, as a sort of background for this, I really thought hard about how to sort of frame the book because I vote for the Democrats 100% of the time. My politics are to the left of the Democrats on almost everything. Um, So I have a political view and I didn't want to hide that during the book. But what I found when I talked to people is the differences between the parties in sort of who were their campaign professionals, Um, in terms of how they think about and talk about their work, in terms of the kind of strategies they're likely to use, are fairly small. Um, Or in some cases, you know, I didn't really see any important difference, I thought, between the... The, the approaches, the ways of thinking about politics in the two in the two parties. So a lot of the book is written about sort of political professionals in general, which is maybe not how those of us who are, you know, who do follow politics closely, who do have strong ideas about how the world ought to be and which party is uh, more uh, in line with our views, which party is, uh, you know, amoral or et cetera. Um, that's not necessarily how we think about it, but it is what I saw when I, or what I heard when I talked to people. Um, I mean, the differences in in the parties, there's huge differences in their ideologies. Those I think have even gotten bigger since, uh, since I did most of the research for this book. The Republican party is more and more uh, full of people at the, you know, national political figures who are openly embracing what I might call a form of, you know, autocracy or, or fascism, people are saying. Uh, it's, you know, more and more overtly uh, anti-trans and often homophobic and uh, racist with only the, the smallest veneer of politeness on top of it, if that. Um, so in terms of the values, there's there's huge differences, but in terms of the ways of thinking about voters and campaigns and how you win, the, the differences are much smaller. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's incredibly, um, and this is why I keep saying it's kind of fascinating, you know, and, and sort of amusing in some ways, but also really depressing how, you know, there are these kind of, you know, shared armies fighting a war and, and kind of war metaphors kind of keep um, kind of coming up throughout the book, even though if you were thinking in terms of kind of, you know, ideologies and, and political platforms they they are you know as you say kind of getting further and, and further apart and, and part of i suppose that the kind of shared profession is a sense of kind of like understanding what it is they do as as being a kind of a shared job or, or, or a shared profession and, and i was thinking a lot about how to kind of boil this question down really because one of the arguments in in the book is is i guess you're maybe a bit kind of critical of um conventional wisdom by campaigners themselves and maybe a bit of kind of conventional wisdom from um, political science that basically like campaigns, you know, sort of uh, don't really matter. Voters basically are are kind of fixed and they vote, you know, broadly speaking on, you know, hugely predictable kind of fixed, often demographic lines. And so there's a question of like, well, why would you bother campaigning? (laughs) And it's, you know, it's it's an existential question for the campaign professionals. But at the same time, they have really kind of, distinctive, I suppose, um, orientations towards what campaigning is for, but also crucially, what it is their jobs are. So, so what what do they think they're doing then? 
I mean, there's there's probably two answers to that. On, on one level, they absolutely believe that what they're doing is trying to win elections. And they're, you know, there's a there's a thing I, I tried to be really careful about in the book, which is on the one hand, there is lots of research that shows that most things campaigns do, it's hard to show that they make any difference at all. Um, there's a study by Josh Kalla and David Brockman that I quote in the book that concludes that you know if we have to estimate the persuasive effects of most things campaigns do, our best estimate is zero, zero effect, right? So there's, you know, there's lots of research that shows this. Um, and yet, you know, on the other hand, and I think this is an important point, a number of people said, we couldn't, you know, what if somebody threw a campaign and, you know, one side ran zero ads? Well, then the other side's ads probably would matter. Uh, so one person I interviewed described it as sort of the the Cold War era equivalent to uh, mutually assured destruction. We have to all do everything the other side is doing, because if we don't, then them doing more is what's going to matter. Um, and I think that's a reasonable, a reasonable take. So I tried to, you know, the, the research on this is, is, uh, there's lots of it. It's complicated. Uh, it tends to come down on the side of most effective campaigns are fairly small and definitely hard to measure. Um, but not that you could just stop campaigning and have the same results. Um, and so, you know, political professionals generally see their job as, fighting over the the margin that's going to make a difference, fighting to be the side that gets to what they often say, 50% plus one, right? All you need is just that last vote that gets you over the edge. And so that's what they're, that's what they're fighting over. Um, I think the other thing that I talk about in the book that I think is important in terms of understanding how they think about their jobs, though, is that you know, you, you mentioned the war metaphors and so on. And it's a war where they're the generals, you know, if they're at the top of a campaign, they get to be the generals. Um, the rest of the folks on the campaign are the are the soldiers and voters are not part of the war. They're the turf that the war is fought over in some sense. Um, and I think that approach to, you know, <laughs> what they think of most of the rest of us is, you know, a real problem for democracy. Yeah, I mean, if we might go sort of and extend that even even further, actually, there is also a kind of um, personal professional motivation um, that un- underpins a lot of, of what they do. And, and I was really struck, um, I, I guess, sort of, this is towards the middle of the book, where you try and unpack this metaphor of being in the room where it happens. Uh, and in order to get there, and, and I'm, I'm going to throw a sort of complicated three-part question at you for this, but the, the first thing is, so how do people get jobs? Because, you know, it's not a meritocracy. How do you kind of get in? How do you sort of, you know, get on in, in terms of getting in uh, to the room where it happens? Uh, and I suppose how is this, you know, really unrepresentative of the America that politics is meant to be serving? Yeah, um, those are great questions. Uh, so, you know, to get a first job in politics, I tell the story of me just trying to figure out how to get a campaign job uh, when I got to grad school in Oak- in Berkeley in 2004. Um, and I thought, you know, I had just come off of four or five years of working in and then running a small nonprofit. I had managed volunteers. I had put on events. I had been in charge of fundraising. I had, you know, recruited people to 
to be part of, uh, you know, to come to our events, to come to our classes. And so I thought I had a lot of the skills that seemed like they'd be really helpful to a campaign. Um, and I went down to the a Berkeley John Kerry office in 2004, and as anybody who's worked in campaigns will will know, I was asked to you know phone bank down a list of names, and that's you know I want to say that's actually in some sense one of the most valuable things that campaigns do is actually organizing, talking to people directly. So it's not that I wasn't doing something important, but it's certainly the case that most of my skills were not being used um, and nobody was interested in my skills or my experience in any way, um, except as an additional body to do, to do phone banking. Um, and so, you know, I went about, you know, fairly intentionally over the next few campaign cycles, trying to figure out how to get a, a job in politics, um, both because I thought it was important and wanted to help make, you know, make the Democrats I cared about win. Um, but also because I wanted to understand this world because I thought I might end up doing research on it. Um, and it took me three more tries until the summer of 2008 to, to get an in. And that in was that someone I knew from my grad program already had a job on the campaign. Um, and so, you know, the fact that I was a grad student trying to get a job on a campaign is not necessarily typical. Uh, but the the difficulty that I had and the fact that what ultimately got me a job was knowing the right person is very, very typical. Almost every political professional I spoke with, and I spoke with 72 of them, told me that they got their first job in politics through someone they knew. A family friend was running for office or a family friend knew a person, knew someone else running for office or someone they knew from college was working on a campaign already, uh, that sort of thing. Um, so getting in requires almost always knowing the right person. It also requires being willing to work even more ridiculous hours than I was working on the Obama campaign. Uh, so one person I interviewed told me that when she got her first job, she was told, you know, we'll work from 9am to 6pm every day, and then we'll work from 9am to 8pm, and then it will go to six days a week. And then we might not start stop until 10 or 11 some nights. Um, as the election gets closer. And she said that was actually an underestimate of the number of hours she was asked to work on that campaign. Um, and that that's, that's really typical. So you have to be willing to work hours that very few other jobs require of you. And on entry level jobs for very, very little money or often even as a volunteer. Um, so the kinds of people who can do, you know, who can uproot their lives to go somewhere else for a job, which is often also required, who can work with very little money, um, and who can do it with no, you know, no job security. By definition, a campaign ends on election day. And so you're taking a job where there's, you know, you definitely won't have a job the day after the election. You may very well, if your candidate wins, get offered something in their administration or in their office once they win, but you don't know whether your cam candidate will win and there's not necessarily jobs for every single person on a campaign either. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty. So the kind of people who can do this kind of, you know, low paid, uncertain, have to move, et cetera, work tend to be people with a fair amount of uh, financial security in the first place. Um, in the class ceiling, which was about, you know, other kinds of elite jobs, uh, we talked about the bank of mom and dad. And, you know, having that kind of financial security to, to fall back on is not, maybe not a job requirement, but it's hard to imagine a lot of people being willing to embark on this sort of work if they don't have that. Um, 
And then you also, and that, and that's part of why you get this world that is deeply unrepresentative of uh, the American population as a whole. It's, it's, it's whiter, it's more middle-class, it tends to be more men than women. Um, and yeah, so that's sort of the, parts one and three of your question um part two was about the the sort of room where it happens and and what things look like once people are in the campaign world and there i mean a lot of what i talked about earlier in terms of how challenging it is to know what's effective in campaigns comes into play because you know if it if it were a world where you could look back and see aha fred on the last campaign was the guy who had this idea and that idea is definitely the thing that won us that election, you would know that Fred is a guy who comes up with good ideas and you should hire him for your next for your next campaign. Um, but that's basically never possible. Um, so instead, when people are thinking about how to who to hire, they think, gosh, I got along with Fred really well, or Fred had the same instincts as I did for what we ought to do, or Fred was able to um, you know, sort of assert himself in meetings and convince everybody his idea was right, and that's really desirable, or I just think Fred seems smart and good. Um, and when people make judgments like that about one another, they tend to fall back on, you know, on what sociologists call homophily, right? We, we tend to like people who are like us, um, as well as on stereotypes. So, you know, people who are straight white men from upper middle class backgrounds tend to come off as more competent, not because they necessarily are, but because that's what our culture teaches us. That's a great overview of, of I guess, what would be the kind of stratification of um, the campaigning profession. Later on in the book, you do a couple of other things, which I guess are kind of broader um, theorizations of, of political campaigning. Um, one of those is to do with what parties are um, and how we might think of them. And the other one, I think, is to do with um, what actually a campaign is. And, and we'll take both of them in turn because I, I was sort of really fascinated by these. I, I think, you know, the, the kind of contribution in terms of the sociology of campaigning professions is incredibly powerful. But also the book doesn't kind of stop by saying this is who is um, kind of running politics in, in the campaign sense it also goes and makes i think some more valuable um contributions in, in different ways you use this term the idea that a campaign is a kind of cultural object and that stood out to me because it, it sort of struck me as as kind of a slightly unusual way of, of thinking about um a political campaign you know i could understand how like campaigning ads would be cultural objects or um you know campaign logos or you know candidate logos or or whatever but the idea that the campaign is a cultural object really I, I was fascinated by and i wonder if you can sort of like first obviously explain it but also how does it fit into this um i, I guess kind of story of the unrepresentativeness of political campaigning in the states now yeah so i think you know, i don't know that i'd say the the whole campaign itself is a single object necessarily but all of what campaigns are doing essentially is is producing culture of some sort, right? It's producing messages, it's producing, it's disseminating ideas, it's getting ads out there. It's, you know, there, you know there's a whole part of campaign that campaigns that's analyzing data, but what we see, what gets out in the world is a set of images, messages, communications, 
ads, speeches, all of this, you know, in another context would be analyzed by cultural sociologists, right? If it's in the context of a movie or, or a song or et cetera, we would think of it as, you know, the sociology of culture would be paying attention to it. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the reason I sort of emphasize that is, is probably, probably two reasons. One is, um, you know, there's a story about what campaigns are, what politics is, that is sort of the default position of, um, of a lot of political science, scientists who think about this, which is they're just doing the sort of rational, necessary thing they need to do in order to convince the right number of people to vote the way they want them to vote. And so it doesn't matter who's doing it. It doesn't, you know, they're all going to do the same thing. And it's just sort of, they take the information they've got, they run it through, you know, I don't know, a rational calculation machine, and they come up with the ads that make sense. Um, and there's really basically none of that. That's not really possible. Um, and so I think it makes more, much more sense to think about it in terms of, uh, you know, the way other forms of culture work. People are in fields, in you know, in communities, in professional worlds, where they are looking around at what other people are doing, what's getting attention, what's being recognized, what's considered, you know, cutting edge or sophisticated or, or otherwise sort of worthwhile. Um, they're taking that on board, they're combining it with their own sense of how things work and what what's effective and good. And they're making their decisions they're producing their you know in the in the world of art they're producing art in the world of politics they're producing politics but whatever it is they're doing that um within the context of the other people around them and i think that gets lost often in um many political science sort of analyses of of what campaigns are and what they're doing um the other reason I think it's so part of the reason I talk about them as cultural objects is to make that comparison to other parts of the social world, other fields, as our friend Pierre Bourdieu would say, where where there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of um, sort of socialness to how people think about what makes something good in their in their world. The other reason I emphasize that, though, is that what campaigns are where are or at least a large portion of where our country's political culture comes from, right? This is where you know, I talk in the beginning of the book about the sociologist C. Wright Mills, who talks about the sociological imagination. And in his dream world, uh, what would happen is that social scientists would help people make connections between the individual struggles they face in their lives and the broader social issues that are um, that are shaping, that are often causing those particular individual struggles. I don't think most people in the U.S. get their sense of how the larger social world influences their personal lives from social scientists. We might be better off if they did. They get it from politicians, from um, you know, from news, from partisan news sources, um, and at least in you know, no small part from campaign ads and speeches. So the Republicans will say. You're, you know, if you can't find a job, it's because there's too many, uh, quote unquote, illegal immigrants here and we need to do something about that. And the Democrats will say, if you can't find a job, we will pass a jobs bill that will help you. Um, and those kinds of messages, those kinds of ads and speeches are where a lot of people, I think, get their 
their ability to connect their lives to larger social issues. So the the cultural view um, of, of campaigns um, and what you've been saying about things like campaign, um, you know, advertising, setting the tone um, for American political culture obviously has implications for what we think of as the institutions producing all of this um, political culture, which obviously is, is political parties. Uh, and you have a kind of slightly different take on what a political party is towards the end of the book. You know, you talk about them as, as networks. And, and I'm interested to know about, so what are political parties and, and, and why does this kind of network idea help to explain them? Yeah. So I think there, you know, there's one picture of a political party, which I think is more accurate in many countries outside the U.S. and was more accurate in the U.S., uh, 75 or so years ago, which is, a, you know, a coherent organization with a structure that's a single organization that has staff that makes decisions that controls a lot of what happens in terms of who runs for office, uh, what even what how they run their campaign. Um, and in the US, that's not really how parties work anymore. Um, there's a lot of different actors. There's a lot of different um, organizations. Uh, partly that's just because we're a you know a giant country, uh, and partly it's because of reforms to the electoral process, uh, such as having open primaries, that really weakened the hold that parties had on how campaign you know, who ran and what kinds of campaigns they ran. Um, so it's not my idea to think about political parties as networks that actually comes from uh, some political science sort of asking this question. Uh, but the important thing about thinking of them as a network is you can include all the people who matter for how each party does their work, uh, which is not just, uh, you know, in the case of the Democrats, the head of the Democratic National Committee. It's all of the political consultants and all of the staff who rotate through different, you know, different campaigns at the, you know, work in presidential election in one cycle, they might work in a Senate election another cycle, they might move to a partisan think tank or foundation in, you know, two years after that, they might work in someone's, you know, for an elected official, right after they help that person win. Um, so there's a set of people who are circulating within democratic politics and a different and almost entirely non-overlapping set of people who are circulating within Republican politics. And those are the people who sort of set the tone and figure out how politics is going to work for each party. And if we just think of, you know, if we just think of a party as the party staff or a mistake that I think people also make in the U.S. sometimes is just thinking of a party as the most well-known consultants, then we miss the the entire set of people who are behind the politics that we get. I mean, th this has you know profoundly important implications for American politics, um, and and you've sort of you know gestured towards them when thinking about um, political parties and, and how we we understand them. But I guess you know all of the analysis of the stratification of. Uh, campaign professionals of uh, the kind of role and, and function of campaign professionals is important in thinking about contemporary U.S. democracy, but actually, you know, democracy in, in a variety of other countries as well. Uh, and I guess the big question that you know sort of concludes the book, but actually runs all the way through the book, is why does this matter? And more profoundly, what are the consequences of the sorts of social closure that you describe with regard to campaigning? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in this. I got interested in this topic because I think campaigns are a way, you know, on the one hand, they're the main time in our political cycle where people with political power are, you know, have to be interested in how can they convince regular people to vote for them. Um, so they're the, the time and the place where there is an interest among people with power in what are regular people going to do. Um, I think that could be, you know, I think in a, you know, in a more effective democracy, there would be a lot more interest in regular people a lot more of the time. And one of the reasons I think it's so important who's running campaigns is because they don't reflect most of us. And so when I think that's part of the reason that so many people look at politics and feel like it's a game that elites are playing that doesn't include them, that they're not invited to, um, that they're not interested in, that is in fact, a, you know, for many people, a huge turnoff and uh, demoralizing and uh, possibly sort of dirty or, or you know, uh, morally polluted Um is because the the people who do it are so distant from everybody else. And so there's no sort of sense of connection or these these are our people in any way. I think the other the other piece of that is, you know, is not just that there's a, a disconnect in terms of race or class or uh, to a lesser degree among Democrats and a much higher degree among Republicans gender. Um, it's also that they all approach politics without a lot of interest in regular people. Now, of course, they are interested in figuring out who's most likely to vote for them, who's most persuadable, who needs a call to make sure they turn out, etc. But it's all very, very one way. It's a, it's a performance rather than a conversation. And that performance doesn't work for lots of people. Um, and all the evidence about, you know, how you actually bring people into into anything, but certainly into politics, is it takes human connection. It takes some form of being willing to reach out and say, you know, I'm interested in you, I'm interested in what you think, I'm interested in your views, and I'm interested in, in having you come vote. And that's the least glamorous, least visible, least exciting for political professionals part of the work that they do. And I don't think it happens nearly enough. And I think that, you know, if, no, if you haven't been asked to vote by anybody and you're not someone who regularly votes already, chances are you're not going to vote. When campaigns prioritize asking people to vote, they get more people to turn out. Um, when they prioritize uh, asking people who rarely vote, they can make a big difference in who turns out, but they almost never do that. And I guess that's sort of a, another piece of it is, you know, there's deep inequality in who it, who's politically engaged in this country. Poor and working class people are much less likely to vote, uh, much less likely to volunteer for campaigns, much less likely to be involved in electoral politics. I think largely because they have a sense that the chance that it will touch their lives is very small. Um, and better off people are much more likely to vote, much more likely to do all kinds of electoral political engagement, and their views get listened to more. And what campaigns do shapes that. Uh, so there's a great study that shows that, uh, you know, campaigns tend to focus their, their get out the vote efforts on people who are sort of in the middle of the spectrum between, you know, the never voters and the always voters. Um, and they don't spend any time or resource generally on people who've never voted, except possibly if they just turned 18. 
Um, and that tends to exacerbate inequality in political participation because the people who vote occasionally are on average better off, richer, uh, more likely to be white than the poor and working class people who, who almost never vote. And so when the people in the middle get extra attention, the probability that they will vote goes up and the steepness of the inequality goes up as well. That is obviously pretty depressing <laughs> as a um, you know, kind of diagnosis for both where we are with American democracy and, and what's you know, likely to, to come. And again, I, I keep stressing, reading the book, there were lots of parallels with various um, other countries' uh, political systems, despite the kind of, you know, sort of uniqueness in, in some ways of, of the states. In conclusion, the, the thing that strikes me when confronted with these sorts of um, accurate, if a little pessimistic um, views, is what next in terms of your own work? You, you know, I can see um, a sort of an agenda that comes from the book that is about, you know, trying to get perhaps one of the political parties to act differently, the other one perhaps less. So, um, you know, thinking um, in terms of the academic, you know, sort of relationships between political sociology and American political science or doing something completely different. Um, so, I mean, one of the, yeah, absolutely one of the things that I hope the book might open up is some shift in how the party I think is generally better and or other folks, you know, involved in politics who are maybe, you know, left aligned political organizations go about their work. And there are already some folks doing this. So one of the one of the sort of takeaways from me for me of the fact that so little of what campaigns do can be uh reliably shown to make much difference is they could do other things instead. And one thing I would love to see the Democrats or other folks um, on the left half of American politics do is invest way more in trying to make connections with regular people. Um, they could, you know, they could shift some of the enormous budget. The Democrats, I think, spent $8 billion in 2020 just on federal elections. Um, if you took one of those $8 billion, you could have thousands of organizers across the United States going door to door, going to community events, and asking people you know, what would it take for you to think the Democrats were on your side again? Um, I think that would be far more effective than, you know, the most brilliant ad anybody could possibly produce uh, for roughly, you know, you know, like a single ad isn't a billion dollars, but ad buys can really add up. They could, they could do this sort of community organizing instead, and I think it would be much more effective. And there's lots of uh, research that, that indicates that. So that's one thing that I really hope comes from the book, that campaigns don't have to work that they, the way that they do. They could make other choices, and those other choices could be far better for, for our democracy in the sense of bringing more people into, into politics than the way they currently do it. Um, in terms of what's next for my work, right now I'm working on a, a fairly huge research project with uh, 15 or so research assistants, a bunch of them from poor and working class communities themselves, where we're doing interviews with regular people about how they see politics um, and hearing, you know, some of the stuff that I, I put in the book and and more about how, you know, as I said, people have a sense that politics is, is not something they're invited to do, um, or it, it feels complicated and like a thing that you have to be a certain kind of person to understand and they're not that kind of person although they kind of wish they were so they're you know they don't vote or they don't um they don't participate that much so those are that's sort of my next project that i'm working on